experience has very likely taught you that it simply isn't wise to go grocery shopping when you're hungry. That is probably one of the easiest budget busters out there. If you want to exceed whatever budget you have for groceries, make sure that you go shopping when you are hungry. Because that is when you are more likely to fill your cart with things that aren't on any list and serve your own interests to satisfy your hunger. And not only that, but sometimes the byproduct of that, when you are so focused on satisfying your hunger when you're grocery shopping, is that you come home to perhaps an unhappy spouse if he or she sent you out with a grocery list only to find that you didn't get half of the items on your list because you were more concerned about satisfying your stomach. So that's what steered the, the decisions that you made because you were more concerned about your own self-interest satisfying your hunger. If only grocery shopping while hungry, if, if, if that was the only instance in, in life that we had to worry about this constant concern about self. Only you know better. You know that we live in a world that is entirely folded in on itself, focusing on self-interest. That our culture, our society is all about you and pursuing what is best for you. And, and maybe a, a little bit different nuance to that in this generation or this society, I should say, where we're at now, is that we've done a pretty good job of kind of hiding or masking our own self-interest. And the way that happens is that we are uh, vocal advocates or proponents of somebody else's cause, some greater good, some marginalized group or individual or organization. We throw our voice and our support behind them, which actually appears to be very much interested in somebody else, unless you dig below the surface a little bit. And you realize that what, what actually is, is posing itself as in the best interest of, of everybody else, tolerance of this, tolerance of that, anything and everything goes, that, that I'm an advocate for anybody else, but in reality, that is the most self-serving thing at all. Because if we can scrape away at the surface, we realize how selfish our true motives are. You see, because if I tolerate what everybody else does, then what I'm really setting up is a foundation where nobody else then is allowed to call me out when I do what I want to do. So in essence, I'm really creating a culture that is okay with anything, and while it looks like I'm interested in everybody else and their cause, what, what I'm really serving is myself, so that nobody then has a leg to stand on to point out when I pursue my own self-interest. Nobody can call me out. That's the world we live in, a very selfish, self-interested culture. And if, if this sounds like one of those sermons that is just going to be a matter of, hey, you Christians, sorry you live in a really bad world, it's hard out there, but you're really good, so don't let the really bad world negatively influence you good Christians, it's not going to be one of those sermons. Because I'm preaching to people who know better, who know that, we don't get to just say there's the world out there and then there's us. We recognize that the world is us. We make up the world. And, and if we also are very much aware of that sinful nature in each and every one of us, it welcomes a world that serves self-interest. 
We gravitate toward that. Our sinful nature wants that. I don't want to be told that I can or can't do anything else according to my sinful nature. It wants to serve me. And so we love that kind of of world. And we are very well aware of the constant battle between sinner and saint. And we are certainly well aware of how sneaky our pride is, our sinful nature is at hiding or masking itself behind what appears to be something for the greater good. When in reality, it's nothing but a heart and a desire that seeks to serve self. Paul actually was addressing that very issue in the verses that we have from our second reading today from Philippians. But to to appreciate what he points out to us about Jesus, you actually have to look at the verses that precede. So they aren't printed in your service folder, but I will read those verses that precede. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he's encouraging, he's commanding the Philippians and you and me, anybody who would listen, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me tell you what's really remarkable about those verses from Paul. It's not just the verses themselves that are quite a tall order, but it's where we find them. Paul wrote a a lot of letters of books in the New Testament, but none of them are characterized by this, this concept of joy or rejoicing nearly as much as this letter to the Philippians. More than any of his other writings, this includes some form or phrase of the word joy or joyful or rejoicing. It stands out. And so it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that in a letter that is all about joy, Paul says... Don't worry about yourself. Look to the interests of others. Because that's counterintuitive to what we would expect. We would expect if you are talking on joy, then you're going to tell me, do what you want. Do what makes you happy. Don't let other people drag you down. Pursue your own ambitions. Be driven and don't let any wet blanket throw itself on your dreams. You do whatever makes you happy. That's the key to joy, but Paul doesn't say that. In the letter of joy, he says, Look to the interests of others. And then he gives us the example of Jesus. And we might not think that, that, that joy and putting the interests of others would go hand in hand, but in fact, that's exactly what another writer in the New Testament said about Jesus and why he rode into Jerusalem. The writer to the Hebrews explained the very purpose behind that In chapter 12 of that book of Hebrews, verse 2, he says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. For the joy set before him, endured the cross. So it was joy that drove Jesus to die. Again, how counterintuitive is that? If Jesus wanted joy, we would think, what would he have to do to circumvent the cross, to get around it, to serve his own interests? But the writer of the Hebrews says, no, it's joy that that drove him. Joy not in his own interests, but he endured that for the sake of others, as Paul said. It was Jesus who carried out what Paul said in verses 6 to 8. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human appearance and being found, or likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How refreshing is this beautiful example of humility that we see in Jesus. Because Paul invites us, encourages us, commands us to not be about ourselves, but to look to the interests of others, to consider others more highly than we consider ourselves. But the truth is that we have no example to have any idea what that looks like. If we were to look around, even the the most wonderful example of a human being that comes to mind. There is no example that that helps us grasp what Paul is encouraging us to do except for Jesus. Jesus alone is the embodiment of what Paul is asking for. From his entire life and ministry, Jesus was all about humility. During his ministry, he served and met the needs of everybody else, putting them even before himself as he stayed up uh, through the hours of the night tirelessly healing, putting others even before his own sleep. And then, of course, we have Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not making a big deal about it himself. Sure, the crowds did, but Jesus wasn't drawing attention to himself by riding in on a donkey, a picture of humility then, of course, how much more humble can one get than being willing to go to the cross and give up his life? And what makes his humility so remarkable is that this was the one innocent individual who was willing to die a criminal's death for a world filled of criminals who deserved that death. When you think of not only the the measure of humility that he demonstrated, that he was willing to die on a cross as a criminal, not just that, but the heights from which he came, from which he descended in heaven all the way down to our lowly earth. There never has been, there never will be an example of humility that will even come close to matching that. What do you think the real temptation was for Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. If you look at all of these verses 6 to 11, you'll notice that there's kind of two parts. There's the the humility parts, the first verses I just read, and then there's the verses that follow that talk about exaltation. Jesus' name being exalted and, and everybody bowing down to him, kneeling before him, confessing his name. Don't you think the real temptation for Jesus would have been fine, Father? I'll I'll do your will. I'll go into Jerusalem, I'll die, but first, before I do, you better believe everybody's gonna know who I am. You better believe that as I ride into Jerusalem, it's going to be the most magnificent thing ever. And everybody's going to know who I am and why I came. And then, and only then, after they have to acknowledge that I am God in the flesh, their Savior, then, then I'll be willing to die. That would have been the temptation for Jesus, but that's not how he did it. Not only was that the temptation for Jesus, that actually is a pretty good summary of our own lack of humility, isn't it? Think of any times that we have maybe strive for humility in our lives. And sure, I'll I'll carry out this trivial, meaningless act of service for somebody, 
but I want to make sure that somebody else knows about it. Sure, I'll, I'll do this thing, this thing that, quite frankly, is beneath me as long as somebody else knows about it. Do you realize the irony of wanting to exalt ourselves for our humility? Of wanting to be known for our humility? And we do this in our conversations with others. We're not so much as listening intently on what somebody else is saying. What we're waiting for is an opening to steer the conversation and make it about me and what I've done in the past and who I know so that I can turn the conversation and the spotlight on self because that's where I like it to be. And on the other end of the spectrum, even when we don't want the recognition, even when we don't want to be known for something, we feel much better about that as long as we first let somebody else know that we don't want to be known for it. Then my pride is satisfied because I know that somebody else knows that I don't want to be known for my act of humility. How humble we truly are, huh? You know better. Your heart tells you that each and every one of us has no small amount of damning pride lurking inside our hearts. And that is exactly why we needed the Savior who rode into Jerusalem in perfect humility. He carried out what we could not. Even our pride-filled humility would never be enough to measure up before God, even, even offering some semblance of, of humility. But we have a Savior who was perfect in his humble obedience, never looking for the recognition, never doing it to be known, but simply in perfect, beautiful humility serving his Father. And not only that, but going to where he did on Good Friday to pay the price for our pride and our lack of humility as well. So Jesus covered all of the bases. The one who rode into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday was our humility. It's kind of as if, if Jesus in, in our modern day would be driving. Never once did Jesus get a speeding ticket, right? But not only that, he also paid for all of your speeding tickets. Side note. If any of you never got a speeding ticket, here's how incipient your pride is. It just was reminded in your head, oh, I've never gotten a speeding ticket. <laughs> Jesus was perfectly humble and paid for your and my lack of humility. Do you know what that means, dear friends? It means that we are actually free from our pride. That each and every day, we are not tied down by guilt or force or coercion to be humble in hopes that we measure up before God in our perfect humility. Because we have a Savior who was humility for us. We have a Savior who went to the cross to pay for our pride. We have a Savior who says that you are free, you are forgiven, you are not tied down or enslaved by your own pride anymore. Holy Week means that you are free. Good Friday is God's guarantee that he accepted the price paid for your pride. And so now, do you know what that means, that we're free? That we aren't tied down or held back by our pride? Now we can go back and revisit those first verses, the ones that precede this perfect example and substitute of Jesus, where Paul said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are free now as often as necessary 
to prick that pride balloon that we carry with each and every one of us, to, to deflate it as often as we need to. Because you know what happens as we, as we allow ourselves to be deflated, as we empty ourselves of ourselves, then there is actually space, then there is room to be filled up with more of Jesus. And when we are filled up with more of Jesus, then we can look at these words from Paul and, and there's a, a genuineness to doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Then it's a reality that I can actually look to others and think of them more highly than myself. That I can actually be more concerned about other people's interests than my own, provided I continue to be filled up with more of Jesus and less of me. And that changes our worldview, doesn't it? It's just like sharing with, with the kids how high up from an airplane everything looks so small and insignificant and when I am so inflated with pride and above everybody else, everybody else looks small and insignificant. But when we come down to earth, quite the opposite. Imagine, again, you're not able to see even an individual from an airplane. You wouldn't be able to see your Savior on the cross. But, but when you let go of your pride, when you empty that, and in perfect humility, you are as low as you can be, and, and on your knees before Jesus looking up to the cross, that is the only thing that fills your view, your frame of mind. All you see is your Savior, less of you, and all of Him. And that frees us to not be so concerned about ourselves. Because there we see a Savior who is ultimately more concerned about us than even himself. And do you know what that, that allows us to do if I can genuinely look to the interests of others? It means that, that God can use us to meet their greatest need, their greatest interest, even if they may not know it. So what does Paul say at the end of this section in Philippians? He says that at the end, when Jesus returns, everybody is going to acknowledge who he is. Nobody is going to be able to go, oh, I'm over here, I refuse to believe that you are the Savior. On the last day, everybody, believers and unbelievers alike, will confess that he is the Savior. Now, the time that we have here on earth, as we are more concerned about the interests of others, do you realize what a pivotal role we play? we get to be a part of seeing that more of those tongues that confess Jesus on that last day will do so not by force and regret, which is what they'll experience in unbelief, but rather confess him out of faith. That happens when we are emptied of ourselves and filled up more with Jesus and are more concerned about their greatest need than even our own to do everything in our power to put this to work so that on that last day, when Jesus does return, and he will, that as many as possible bow down before him and confess him out of joy-filled hearts, hearts that are filled with faith. I hope you learn a little bit more this morning than just don't go shopping on an empty stomach. But there is something to be said for less of ourselves, emptying ourselves, not being focused on satisfying our own needs or hungers or desires. And as we let go of that in true humility, which we're free to do now, 
we can be filled up with more of Jesus. And my prayer is that you take advantage of all of the opportunities this Holy Week to be filled up with more of Jesus. So that just as it was joy that drove him to endure what he did, so that you and that others, as many as possible, might also experience that same joy that comes from knowing what their Jesus did for them. Amen.